Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today for the first time, you can start on day 316. 316. Uh, and don't forget to keep sending us in those questions. We love being able to, if all honesty, have a backlog of questions that we have to add multiple questions per podcast episode right now. So keep sending them in. If you've got questions along the way, there's three ways, infogrove.church, or you can direct, direct message us on social media, Facebook, or Instagram. The handle is GroveCH. Uh, we are the Grove Church, as Evan said, in, in Marysville, Washington. Uh, so make sure to put it in the heading or even at the very beginning of the, the message is that it's a podcast question, so it gets to us. So Yeah, the questions have been fun. Usually, I would say we get like over the course of the history of the podcast, I would say we've averaged like one a week ish. And so we just pretty much like, oh yeah, let's go answer it. But we got like, we got a, a, a random spurt of just getting like 10 or 12. And it's like, okay, let's get it. Like, so we're, yeah, it's a lot we're of fun. slowly but surely making our way through and we will catch up. So don't worry. If you've sent in a question, and we haven't answered it yet. It's coming. We will be answering. Don't you fret. I blame Evan's vacation from a few weeks ago that put a backlog on it. Oh, that's so true. That's that Evan's was part fault. of it. We actually probably would be caught up if it wasn't for that. <laughs> what are you going to do? All right. Well, let's get into the book of Acts. Last week, we left on, a, left on a bit of a cliffhanger. Peter had been captured and thrown in prison. So we pick up today in Acts chapter 12, verse 6. We see an angel of the Lord appears. This angel wakes up Peter and leads him outside of the, outside of the prison. Um, I love that Peter thinks this whole thing is a vision, which makes total sense to me. Like he thinks like, because imagine he's in the depths of sleep. He gets woken up. The angel's like, come with me. They're just walking by all of the guards and going outside. Like I totally buy that. Peter's like, wow, I'm seeing a cool vision of like my, maybe my future freedom in Christ or whatever this is. And then the angel leaves and Peter's outside and he realizes, oh, oh, this happened. This is a real thing. And so he leaves. And so I, I don't know. I think that part's great. Uh, he goes to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. But it takes a while for people to let him in because they don't believe it. So a servant girl uh, answers the door and he's like, hey, it's Peter. And she runs in and she tells everyone, hey, Peter's here. And they're like, no, he's not. What are you talking about? He's in prison. So, But eventually he gets let in. So we're all good there. Uh, in the morning, Herod, and this is this is where I, get, I, I put this a little bit. This is really confusing. Herod Agrippa I is the Herod that we're talking about. In the biblical narrative, they just say Herod most of the it's time. True. And so what, it's kind of like the French, how they can't come up with a new name for a king besides Louis. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Jews in the first century could not come up with the name of a king that wasn't Herod. And so there's names that come after it. And Herod is more of a title, I suppose, in, in, in a sense. But um, this is – so this is not the same Herod who had John the Baptist put to death. Are you sure? So just that kidding. is Herod – I believe that's Herod the Tetrarch. And then there's Herod Agrippa I, which is the one who persecutes the the early Christians at this point. And spoiler alert, he's not going to be on the throne for very long. And then we'll meet Herod Antipas, who is another Herod, who, and that's the one who Paul goes before eventually. So there's a bunch of Herods. I know it's really confusing. I'm sorry. Uh, in fairness, they're not super like you know. It's not super important to know like the Herods. I suppose like they're important characters, but they're not like you know they're not at the core of the story necessarily. But this is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, he is so angry that Peter has escaped that he orders all of the guards in charge to be put to death. All the guards that were in charge of guarding Peter. So that's kind of sad, but what are you going to do? So things don't go well for Herod after all of this. And so we read in Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 21. 
It says, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took up his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. So he's talking to the people and the people were shouting the voice of God, the voice of a God and not of a man. And so you can imagine Herod's like, yeah, you're darn straight. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I love that little ending line there. So Herod's dead. The word of God is going to continue. And that's the last we hear of good old Herod and Herod Agrippa the first. So yeah, after this, when we meet Herod again, I believe it's Herod Antipas is the next one, but there could be one in between. I don't know. Here's the deal, listeners. Even I get confused by the Herods. <laughs> I, I do this for a living. All right. So after this, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark return to Jerusalem and they are sent off for their first missionary journey. So if you've ever heard, if you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you heard about the missionary journeys of Paul and they'd have it on maps and stuff like that, or maybe that was just me. I don't know, but we're going to start talking about those missionary journeys. Uh, They are commissioned. I I didn't write down everyone, but specifically a couple names I thought were interesting. Uh, Simeon Niger, Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean. So interestingly what this shows, so Simeon Niger, uh, Niger is, uh, I can't. Remember, I think I can't remember if it's Greek or Latin. Shoot, but it's the word for dark, uh, and so it's showing this, this. It's an African man, and so in the early church, you have an African man who is very high up. You also have Menaean, who it says is a childhood friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And that one I remember, they actually do tell you it's Herod the Tetrarch in in the verse. So it's not Herod Agrippa. Uh, So in the early church, you have, it's very multicultural, right? You have people that's not just necessarily uh, from the land of Israel. You have people coming from all over the region, and you also have this it's, I guess it's a socially diverse as well, where you have Menaean would have been extremely high up as well. So, and they all, uh, they all lay their hands on Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, and they send them out. So the three men leave from Antioch, which is in the far, which is far North of Israel, sorry, not in the far North of Israel. Uh, it is in the South of modern Turkey and close to modern Syria. So if you're imagining, if you can picture with me for a moment, the Middle East, and it kind of goes up the eastern side of the Mediterranean, and then it jets out into Turkey. Antioch is located right before it jets out into Turkey is kind of where I would say it is. So that's And that was kind of a, a base of a lot of the missionary journeys of the early church, especially when they're being persecuted in Jerusalem. Antioch kind of became one of the main centers. It's also confusing because there's multiple Antiochs. So this is the Antioch, and we're going to call it Syria because back then that's what the nation was that housed it. Uh, There's another Antioch that we're going to talk about in a second that is located in, I mean, modern day Turkey, but in the region of Galatia as well. Uh, The first stop when they set sail out of Antioch is to the island of Cyprus. So that's the big island south, right to to the south of Turkey. If you're imagining, it's the one that has kind of like a handle on the right side or on the east side. There you go. I don't know if you care about these maps or not, listeners, the mental maps, but I care about them because... Listen, they're in the Bible. They're in my study Bible, so I don't have to care about them mentally. I just care about seeing them. It helps a lot when you see them. So if you're not a... If you need to see something, I would say make sure to... Uh, look into a study Bible, or you can even Google it too. Just make sure you type in the right era and, and time with Paul. So That's true. Or maybe my but mental maps really are helping you enough. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I'm just and I think there are some, and I don't say that to be like contrary. I say that to, I'm, I'm more of a visual person where I, you can tell me all about it, but I have to see it to really believe it. I guess seeing yeah. is believing for me. Um, shout out to the Santa Claus. But, uh, but that's just another layer too. It helps because it's going to help you see and understand more um, visually what's going on and where Paul's going. So I just, that's a help. 
It's true. Okay, so they go to Cyprus. They land in Salamis, which is in the northeast of the island, right right before the little handle there. Uh, and they make their way all the way to Paphos in the southwest. So they're preaching, they're go- stopping in the synagogues. And you'll see this is kind of the main way that early church evangelism is happening. They're going into the synagogues because, and, and this is important to remember, the early Christians would not have considered themselves non-Jews. Um, they would have considered themselves fulfilling the Jewish prophecies about who the Messiah is. And so, of course, when they're going to the Jews, they're not saying, hey, forsake the faith of your fathers and join this new religion. What they're saying is, hey, all those things that the prophets prophesied about, it's been fulfilled and here's how. So, that's kind of an important thing to say to say in that moment. They're going to all the synagogues, and eventually when they get to Paphos, they run to a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, so, and that just means son of Jesus. So, we don't know necessarily who he is, but his father's name was Joshua or Jesus, but and maybe he was Jesus, son of Jesus, and they just called him Bar-Jesus. I don't know. Anyway, Paul is uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he declares that this man is now blind. So, Bar-Jesus is trying to stop him, and Paul's like, you know what? You're temporarily blind now. And then it happens immediately. Bar-Jesus is now blind. After seeing this, the proconsul of the area is amazed and he believes in the gospel. After this, they leave Cyprus and they sail for mainland Turkey. So they arrive in the south in a city called Perga. Uh, at this point, John Mark leaves for Jerusalem. More on that later. So that might not seem like a big deal, but it turns into a big deal. Uh, After John Mark leaves, Paul and Barnabas travel north to the region of Galatia and specifically the city of Antioch. So again, this is not the Antioch in Syria that they left. This is Antioch in Galatia. Galatia is a really interesting region. It's in central Turkey and it's inhabited by Celts. Uh, And if you don't know what the Celts are, it's basically like think... I guess in modern times, it's the the Irish, the Scots, the Welsh, and then there's that one, it's Brittany, I think, and off that's the uh, offset of France. Oh, and the Isle of Man. You can't forget the Isle of Man. Anyway, uh, the, the Celts used to be, they were a Germanic tribe. They took a lot of power. In the, in the Roman world, kind of when you're talking about the barbarians, most of them are the Celts. Uh, eventually, they get replaced by other Germanic tribes, and that's what happens that they get pushed away. But one of the regions that they inhabited was Galatia, and it was given to them. And so it's kind of interesting to picture, because I think we, when we think of the missionary journeys of Paul, we think of Greeks and Romans and kind of like the Middle Eastern vibes. But these guys were pretty much like Celts that he was witnessing to as well. So pretty interesting. Anyway, Paul and Barnabas began preaching in the synagogues that, G- or sorry, in the synagogue in Antioch that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Uh, the people are so moved that they beg Paul and Barnabas to come back on the next Sabbath and share again. So they come back on the following Saturday, and when they do this, the whole town had gathered, including the Gentiles. So they originally were telling the Jews, "Hey, here's who Jesus is. This is incredible." Uh, now even the the pagans around are gathering, and they want to hear more about what's going on. Uh, At this point, the Jews get a little jelly and they drive Paul and Barnabas away. And so they head east into central Galatia and the city of Iconium. So that's the next stop that they have. There they preach and they stay for a long time. So it kind of works out. And we kind of, you know, I I would assume Iconium is like, they they do all right. Uh, So many of the people come to believe in Christ, but Paul and Barnabas are eventually driven out. And that you'll notice this is a theme that kind of happens everywhere that Paul goes is eventually he gets driven out. Uh, They leave for their final stop on the missionary journey, and these are the seemingly twin cities of Lystra and Derbe, or Derby. I don't know. Derby sounds like it's not the right way to pronounce it, but what are you going to do? And this is in the southeast of the region of Galatia. In Lystra, they immediately come upon a man who was crippled from birth, and then this goes down. So this is Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 9. 
It says, he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made, uh, Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And the crowd saw what Paul had done and they lifted up their voices saying in uh, Laocian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you, and we bring you the good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good things by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained themselves. Uh, they, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Uh, and so we see here, there's a miracle and the people are just like, it's Zeus, it's Hermes, wow. And they start offering sacrifices. Paul and Barnabas try and rein it in. Uh, they're not super successful, but it kind of just shows like some of the, uh, it, it's interesting because when we're, we're going to read Galatians here in a little bit. And so you can picture all these different situations that are happening because there's these two twin issues that are going on. Number one, uh, there's the Jews who are kind of getting a little bit jealous of the Gentile believers. So there's the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers, and there's this pressure from them to be, no, you have to be Jewish. You have to keep the Old Testament law. You have to be under the old covenant, and then you can have access to Jesus. On the other end of the spectrum, there's this very pagan influence of these are some of the gods and they've come here and Paul and Barnabas are trying to fight against that. So these twin issues that are coming up in the book of Galatians. Well, all good things must come to an end, it seems. So uh, some of the Jelly Jews from back West came and they stoned Paul. So they- That's their official title, by the way. The Jelly Jews. I was, I, dude, I cannot tell you, I can't, I can't tell you. I spent a couple of minutes trying to find a third J just for the alliteration and I could not find a, I could not figure something out. So it's just the Jelly Jews, but what are you going to do? Uh, but they come from Iconium and Antioch. They stoned Paul. And so, and they think, he, they think they killed him. So they drag him outside of the city and they just leave his body there. The next day, some of Paul's disciples come and it seems it seems like they're coming to like grab the body and go bury it and then Paul just gets up <laughs> and he goes back to work so he's just like oh wow that was a weird dream that was a nice nap <laughs> yeah that was a nice nap and then he just gets up heads back uh they go to Derbe which is the final city. So they were in Lystra that now they're going back to Derbe or sorry, to Derbe for the first time. And then after that, they backtrack through all the cities that they had already visited, making their way back to Antioch. And when I say Antioch, I mean the first one in Syria, not the second one in Galatia. So that's a little confusing, but yeah, basically they just, they just go back the way that they came and they encourage all of the Christian churches on the way back. Well, it's during this time that Paul may have written his letter to the churches in Galatia, or we know as the book of Galatians. Um, we don't know this for certain. Most of the letters of Paul, we can't date with you know anything exact. A few of them are pretty clear. Like for instance, Second Timothy, that's pretty clear when you read it. Oh, he's about to die. So you can kind of date that to right before Paul dies. Galatians, it could have been written pretty early. It could have been written a little bit later. It, either way, it's an early letter of Paul. It's, it's definitely not one of his later ones. Um, but it makes sense that it would have been written after he returned to Jerusalem 
he had traveled back through, he had seen some of the issues, and now he's writing a letter to go address some of those churches that were, you know, falling astray a little bit. Uh, and so keep in mind re- that Galatia is a region. It's not a city. So this letter is almost certainly, I shouldn't say almost certainly, it is certainly meant to be uh, circulated. It's not meant to go to one specific church. It's meant to go to the churches of these, this region that Paul and Barnabas had just planted. Uh, the theme of the letter makes a ton of sense given that there was a major conflict between the Gentile and Jewish believers. And so he kicks off his letter with a gospel presentation followed with some real disappointed dad energy. And you'll see what I mean when I start talking here. Uh, So this is Galatians chapter one, starting in verse three, it says, grace and peace from our, from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself our, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. So right there, you're already starting off with like, hey, remember, God is our Father. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for deliverance from this present evil age, from our sins. Now let's continue. Verse six, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ." Uh, so right here, there's a lot going on. Again, Paul is representing the gospels of the Galatians, trying to remind them of what he taught. He's also telling them that they have forsaken it for another gospel. And I love his little aside. You've forsaken it for another gospel. Not that there is another gospel. So basically, it's like there's not a second way out of this. There's not a second way out of death and hell. Uh, you've forsaken the true gospel for a false gospel. And then it's verse 10 is really interesting because it kind of it probably gives us a hint as to the accusations that Paul was under. Because when Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? It's a rhetorical question, but what that hints at, or what can be inferred from that is that people in Galatia were accusing Paul of seeking the approval of man. So they're saying, they're just telling, and you can see how the argument grows out, right? You can see some of the the Jewish believers saying, Paul's just telling you what you want to hear, that you don't have to be circumcised and you don't have to keep kosher and you don't have to keep all the festivals. Let me tell you, that's wrong. And Paul just, want, Paul just wants you to like him. And so now Paul is writing back and saying like, hey, uh, am I seeking the approval of man or God right now? You tell me. So Paul then continues to make clear his qualifications to preach the gospel. So he shows that he was given revelation from Christ. And so he recounts a little bit of the story of, uh, where was he on the road to? Damascus, when he was on the road to Damascus. Uh, He also tells a story of where he was before Christ and how long he had sat under the teaching of the apostles. This is one that I think we never think about. So we, we kind of tend to think of Paul's on the road, Paul's persecuting Christians. He's on the road to Damascus. Uh, God knocks him off his donkey. I was going to go for it, but I, I chickened out. Uh, and then eventually he is blinded. He's, he has his sight returned to him. He believes in Christ. And we kind of pictured that he immediately goes as a missionary. But no, he sits under the apostles for 14 years. This is a, it's a very long time yeah. from when Paul is converted to when he actually goes and begins his ministry in earnest. So it's a, it's a good chunk of time. And so uh, in chapter two, and I'm sorry, I should, I should preface this. What Paul is saying here is that it, it, that's an important thing to say, because yeah. he's saying that I, I'm not just like some guy who just converted and now I'm coming out and telling you whatever I want to hear. He's saying, I sat under the men 
who had sat with Jesus and I learned from them and now I'm coming to you. So this is not some guy who's just off the cuff. Like he's not like an Apollos is a character that we'll meet later in Acts. Um, and Apollos is great. I love Apollos, but he he's essentially that kind of person where he gets saved and he immediately is like, okay, let's go. And they have to kind of like rein him in and teach him a little bit. Paul's saying, that's not me. I've, I've been at this for 14 years. I've been learning and now I'm teaching you. So an important point. Uh, in chapter two, Paul tells the story to tells a story to the Galatians about when he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. This is our first time hearing about good old Titus. Uh, And he notes that Titus was not forced to be circumcised by the apostles. And so again, if the argument is, hey, if if you're a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Paul is saying, I had a Greek with me named Titus. He's a believer. And the apostles did not force him to get circumcised. So already, and you can kind of, again, you can infer a bunch of things from these, from these arguments. It seems reasonable to think that some of the Jewish believers in Galatia were saying, hey, Paul is not one of the true disciples. We you know, think about Peter and James and John and all of them. And so what Paul is saying here is like, hey, Peter, James, and John didn't force Titus to get circumcised. I don't know why you're trying to force it either. Uh, Paul then shares that James, the brother of Christ, Peter, and John, uh, I should say Peter is called Cephas, which is just another way of saying Peter. So mm-hmm. if you see, if you ever see Cephas, that's what it means, by the way. Uh, so Peter, uh, James, Peter, and John all bless the ministry of Barnabas to the Gentiles. And so they say, basically, they, they, they interpret it. They sit under Paul and they're like, okay, well, I think God has anointed you for your ministry to the Gentiles. And then they say that God has anointed us for ministry to the Jews. Uh, Specifically, they say circumcised and uncircumcised, but there you go. And so that is Paul's given mission. So he's giving all of his bona fides to the Galatians. He's saying, I'm not some false teacher. I'm not some rogue. I have sat under the apostles teaching and they've anointed me for ministry. Uh, After this, Paul shares how he confronted Peter later in Antioch. Uh, Peter, while he was up there, was just fine living the Gentile life until representatives from James came, and then Peter reverted uh, reverted back. And so Paul actually straight up confronts him about this, and he calls him a hypocrite. So it's a little apostle infighting, but it also shows that Paul truly believes what he's saying he believes. Uh, This launches a long section from Paul explaining that we are justified before God by faith and not by works. And so again, if the, our salvation does not come from keeping festivals, it does not come from keeping the law, because that was the rule under the old covenant. You keep the law and I will protect you. Under the new covenant, it is Christ has already done this for us. Uh, and then he asks this really interesting question. So this is in Galatians chapter three, starting in verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So I thought that, that I don't know why this is the first time I've kind of thought about this in this way. What he's saying there is that when he preached the gospel to the Galatians, they heard and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were saved. And so what Paul says is, well, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling you right now, if you are saved, why didn't you have to keep all of the laws? Wouldn't the Holy Spirit have waited to do that until you were circumcised, until you converted to Judaism, until you began to keep the festivals? He's saying no, but he's saying that's not what happened. God saved you right then and there because you heard with faith. So I thought that was really, I thought that was a really interesting argument from Paul. Um, and it makes a ton of sense. He continues on. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
just as Abraham just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So again, Paul is going through, he's showing that the salvation of the Galatians has come by faith. It hasn't come by works. And he even shows how in the Old Testament, we see that where uh, Abraham is, you know, if, if he was saved by works, we can think of a lot of stories where Abraham falls woefully short. He's saved by the mercy of God and he's saved by the fact that he has faith that God will be providing. So really cool moments from Paul there. I think they're really smart arguments. Uh, as he continues, Paul explains that no one who lives under the old covenant will be justified by the old covenant. Or in other words, if you're living under the idea of I'm going to keep the entirety of the law and be justified, it's just not going to work. Uh, in the next section, Paul explains that God's promise to Abraham uh, that his offspring would be a blessing to the world was referring to Christ. And so here we see the, the way that that appears to have been interpreted was the offspring of Abraham means all of all of the Jews, the nation of Israel is going to be a blessing to the earth. Uh, what Paul is getting at is that in the Hebrew, and it's really interesting that he's getting this deep into the weeds, but in the Hebrew there, the word can mean either the entire offspring or it can mean a single offspring, which I guess it's the same in English. The word offspring can be plural and it can be singular as well. And so what Paul is saying is that that verse is referring to Christ, that Christ is the offspring from Abraham that will be blessing the world. Uh, he also shows that under the new covenant of Christ, all people are equal, and he refers to specifically Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, uh, men and women. They are now all children of Abraham under the new covenant. So in other words, there's, there's, he's getting at this idea that you don't get to be better or worse because of your status in any of these groups. You're children of God. Uh, so if the Gentiles and Jews are both heirs of Christ, they do not need to follow the old covenant. Paul worries that their obsession with following the law and festivals shows that his preaching was in vain. Uh, Paul then interestingly compares the old and new covenants to Hagar and Sarah, or more specifically to Ishmael and Isaac. And so he calls Ishmael a child of slavery and Isaac a child of promise. And so the idea here is that Ishmael is like the old Ishmael is like the old covenant, Isaac is the new covenant. Whereas Abraham tries to kind of force the issue and get at the promise of God himself, right? That's what Ishmael is. He, he says that God has promised me a son. He's promised me descendants that outnumber the stars, but it hasn't happened yet. And so now I'm going to sleep with one of my servant girls, Hagar. I'm going to have a son and that's going to be the son of promise. So he tries to force it, uh, but that doesn't work because Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac is the one who God has appointed. In the same way, when we try to earn our salvation, it's us trying to like, just like Abraham forced it with Ishmael, us trying to force it is like the old covenant. We're trying to physically earn a thing that cannot be earned. The new covenant is like Isaac. It's what God has promised. So really, I don't, really cool thing here. Like I love reading this with fresh eyes. And um, when we went into the chronological plan, the thing I was most excited for was reading through the prophets and the Kings and Chronicles and seeing how all of that fits together. I didn't think about how cool it was going to be to read acts and then read the epistles and see how all of that fits yeah, together very as true. well. So reading, reading Galatians with all of the context of Paul's missionary journey into Galatia really helps put it all into perspective. So it's been really fun. Uh, in chapter five, Paul keeps going after requiring the people to follow the law. So sorry, he keeps going after the people requiring uh, others to follow the law. This is in verse one of chapter five. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept, accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For, by, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything but only faith working through love." Uh, I believe this is the first time that we see Paul. He does this a couple times in his letters. He'll specify when he is saying something, which is, I think, really important because there's a few things where it's like, this is kind of Paul's personal advice, but it's not necessarily, it's, it's, it's not to be meant to be taken as like, this is a sin if you don't do it. Uh, so when he says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This is not saying that anyone who is circumcised is not a Christian anymore, right? And so what he's getting at is if you think that this is going to be a thing that saves you, it's not an adva- it's not going to work. Uh, following the old covenant, following the old law is not going to th- go the way that you think it's going to go because you have to follow the entirety of the old law. He's like, it's not, you can't just do one aspect of it and say, oh, look, I followed the law. You have to keep the entirety of the law. And that's just not going to happen is kind of what he's getting at. As it continues on, Paul also shows that the whole of the law can be summed up with you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which I think is a really interesting insight. Uh, Jesus, again, what does he say? The two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul is saying when you're talking about how to treat each other, you can kind of just sum it up right there. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, As Paul ends the letter, he exhorts the Galatian Christians to walk in the fruit of the spirit. And so this is where he he contrasts the, I forgot the word he uses. It's not the fruit, but he he contrasts the fruit of the kind of the world and then the fruit of the spirit, which is, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How are we supposed to act when we, as, as Christians, and he's telling us that's how we act. We need to always be ready to show mercy to people who sin against us. And he kind of walks through an idea of like, hey, if a brother sins against you, rebuke him in love and bring him back into the fold and then never grow weary of doing good. Never grow weary of doing good works, do good deeds and showing the love of Christ to others. And then Paul finishes Galatians by writing a final message himself. Uh, This is another thing that we see in a lot of Paul's letters. What this means is that he's dictated a lot of this. So someone else is writing it down, uh, very possibly Luke, but you know, Paul's traveling with a lot of people. And at the end of a lot of the letters, he writes a personal message in his own handwriting. So he says in verse 11, see with large, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that may boast that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So there you go. Amen. Um, no, I love the idea of what Paul is saying is that, hey, the the Jewish believers who want you to be circumcised, they're just doing that because they don't want to be persecuted by other Jews who don't believe in Christ or who don't believe that this is a thing. And so he's saying, stop it. Don't let them, don't let them take advantage of you like that. So really cool in that moment. I think there's a way to apply that to our lives as well. It's like, what are we doing just for show? <laughs> like, what do we want other people to do for show versus what are we actually convicted about as believers? We're not the application section yet. That's true. Sorry, listener. Cheater. Okay. Well, 
word back in acts and let me tell you aaron there is a ton of drama <laughs> it's very so, true uh some men it's are the early church what do you expect yeah it's true uh so some men come down from judea and they begin teaching the christians that they must all the new converts who are not jews um so the gentile converts i guess is an easier way of saying that uh that they must follow the law of moses well now a council meets to decide this issue so this is a council of like kind of the apostles, the apostles that are around. So pretty interesting. It says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by the mouth of that, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. So this is the same argument that Paul used, right? Paul said when the Galatians heard they were filled with the Holy Spirit, God did not wait for them to become Jews. Uh, In the same way, Peter's talking about how, hey, remember when we were witnessing to the Gentiles and they also received the Holy Spirit in that moment, God didn't wait for that either. So continue on in verse 10, it says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them, uh, through them among the Gentiles. So what happens here? So Paul is, Peter is saying, why are we putting this heavy boke that this heavy yoke that we haven't even been able to bear? Why are we trying to put that on new converts when Jesus hasn't even said anything about that? And then Paul and Barnabas begin to share. Here's all the miracles that have been happening. Here's how the Holy Spirit has been working. And there there doesn't seem to be a difference between those who accept Christ and are and our Jews and those who accept Christ and are Gentiles. It says, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, and this is James, the brother of Jesus, uh, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And this, the words of the prophets agree. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will build the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things know from old. Uh, So there you go. James is Going back to the Old Testament, he's saying, no, even the prophets have talked about this. And we talked about this when we were in the prophets. There's a few sections yeah. where it's like talking about the Gentiles as well. It's like, wait a second. So James is starting to pick it up. Uh, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and what has been strangled and from blood. For the ancient genera- for from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So basically, James's point is, you know what? No, they don't need to follow the entirety of the law. Here's some things that would be super offensive to Jewish believers and for the sake of unity in the church, abstain from these things. Um, sexual immorality is not part of that. That's like, that's just a sin. <laughs> but the, the other parts of it are kind of as like rules of the old of the old covenant um, where he's saying, hey, just don't, don't be a part of this either as well. So there you go. That's the decision. So the council, the council has spoken. James hammers down the gavel. They have decided that the Holy Spirit is allowed to do what he's been doing. So good for the, good for the council. Praise God for that. I heard that as a, who was, I think it was Matt Chandler did a sermon one time, but he, that's how he described this chapter as like, they kind of just meet to decide if the Holy Spirit's allowed to do that. And I was like, that's a great way of putting it. It's a little bit, it's a little <laughs> bit funny. 
so as we continue, a letter. I'll allow it. Yeah, I will allow it. Uh, a letter is written and it's sent with Paul Barnabas, Judas Barsabbas, who is not, I forgot the first name of the other Barsabbas, but it's not the Barsabbas that was almost a disciple and passed over from Matthias. This is another guy. I, I should look at what Barsabbas means because apparently it's a fairly common nickname. Uh, so we meet Judas Barsabbas and also Silas, who uh, that guy's going to be pretty important here in a little bit. Uh, they go to Antioch. This is the Antioch in Syria. And then they inform the Gentiles of the council's decision. And then there's a letter that they carry with them. And it's meant to be circulated. And it's basically what James just said. Hey, we've decided you don't have to follow the old law. Just keep these and keep the peace and we'll be good. Uh, Paul and Barnabas hang out in Antioch for a while. And then they decide to go back to the cities where they had planted churches. So they kind of go back on that first missionary journey, journey, journey. Uh, and then, you know what, Aaron, some more drama happens. Wait, what? I know. No. So remember how- Not with said, the early church. Remember how I said John Mark leaving was kind of a big deal that would come up later? This is later. So Acts chapter 15 and verse 36, it says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they are. And now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take one with them who had withdrawn from them in Pam, uh, Pamphylia and who had not gone with them to the work. That's a nice way to put it. I know. So, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers by the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening, strengthening the churches. So it's kind of really sad, but we see this... Um, this really effective missionary team of Paul and Barnabas is split apart over this argument of whether to take John Mark with them. This is not a light argument because again, this isn't like a thing like, oh, Mark, I don't really want to take that guy. And Barnabas is like, come on, let's just take him. Like, That's one of those things where like, eventually you would just be like, fine, whatever, he can come along. No, Paul is very opposed to yes. take – he is very angry with John Mark about what he did. Um, I saw some speculation that it's possible that Mark went back to Jerusalem and snitched is kind of part of the reason that Paul's mad. This is very open-handed conjecture, hmm. um, but it's wondering, is, is it a coincidence that Paul and Barnabas get back from their missionary journey and immediately this whole controversy of what they've been telling the Gentiles comes up? Like, is it possible that Mark was uncomfortable and he went back and told them? Um, we're not told that. So I'm not, here, yeah. I'm not here saying that that's it's for interesting sure. interesting for sure. Yeah. I'm not here saying that that's for sure what happened, but maybe you never know. So one of those things. Um, even, Either way, Paul feels deserted yep. and abandoned and... And doesn't want to, he does, in essence, I can't trust the guy. Is he really going to have my back or is he going to flake out again because he's in, uh, right. uncomfortable or it's inconvenient? And again, remember, Mark is probably the boy in the gospel of Mark who Ran flees. away naked. Yep, naked. exactly. So we see this kind of the running away when things get tough seems to be a character trait of Mark in, the, in his early days. Um, but, you know, spoilers for later, their relationship gets repaired. It doesn't get repaired in Acts. We don't actually see it happen, but you have to kind of look at the ends of letters and yep. eventually you'll you'll see what happens, but we'll get to that. We'll highlight it when we hit it. Yeah, exactly. We'll talk about the, the repaired relationship of Paul and Mark. But for now- There is hope, people. Yep. There is hope. But for now, Barnabas and Mark are a team and now Paul and Silas are a team. So there you go. Now they're competing against each other. Yeah. Just kidding. Just I, kidding. I'm going to save more people. Uh, you know, honestly, not a bad competition. <laughs> like, no. Well, and, I, and I, I would even it. say like the part of the, like the part of the beauty in this dysfunction is God, God's church continues to grow. His kingdom continues to expand because now you take one effective ministry missions partner or whatever 
a, a, a group of guys and you're splitting them in two and they're, they're continuing right. to further the work. So you see the goodness of God in the midst of that for yeah. sure. But yeah. No, for sure. That's definitely a rift. <laughs> uh, in verse 16, we see Paul and Silas arrive at Lystra. Lystra. I should learn how to Lystra. 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 Uh, and there they meet another important character. A young man named Timothy. Timothy. Timothy, Timothy joins them. Uh, Timothy is going to be a he's a he's an important person. Yes. So there you go. We'll 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 be hearing a lot more from Timothy as we go on. Uh, he is also circumcised at this point, which is a bit of a bummer as an adult. Um, and this is where I think it's interesting, right? Because an Paul, adult male, adult male. Yeah, that's true. Um, but like again, in Galatians, Paul says if you're circumcised, it's it's no good for you. So I think that's where you can get at. That's Paul's kind of personal advice to the people in that moment. Here, it seems that Timothy is being circumcised just to avoid the whole controversy. Yeah, it's it's a stumbling block issue, right? So yeah. it's, it's you're going to have the people that Paul knows him and Timothy are going to go and reach and preach the gospel to. He's trying to remove every stumbling block f- possible. I mean, he even says it in, in his letters, like we become all things all men, so by any means necessary, we might save some. Yep. So there is that picture, but and yes, it is a bummer. Timothy's a, Timothy's a better man than I, because that's <laughs> like, here's the deal. Like, that's a, that's a lot of pain to go through to remove a stumbling block, but there you go. Way to, way to put the gospel first, Timothy. Good for you. I'm not going to uh, touch that with a 10-foot pole. After this, uh, they travel out of Asia through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So basically, they, they feel constrained by the Holy Spirit and they're not supposed to be in Asia right now. Time to move. Yep. So they go up to Greece and this is where we, uh, Macedonia, which is in Northern Greece, birthplace of Alexander the Great. This is where they go and pay attention to this. This is really interesting. Listeners, you might not have picked this up because it's, it's subtle. At chapter 16, verses 11 through 12, it says this. Now setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and Wait a the second. following day to Neapolis. So this is when Luke joins them. It's not a scene. Like we don't get this moment of like, hey, yeah. we met Luke and he's a super cool guy. Yep. Uh, but there's moments and it, it shifts back and forth now. So there's going to be moments in Acts where clearly Luke was not among them and he's getting the story. Uh, but now it goes, in, and I, I love that Luke does this. So thank, thank you, Luke, for when he's actually recording the things like I witnessed these things myself. And so we get those things in first person. So pretty fun. Uh, and it's, yeah, it is a very subtle shift all of a sudden. It goes from, they did this, they did this, and then we, and it's like, yep. I mean, I even had to stop, and I knew it was coming, but I even had to stop. Like, oh, that's right. There it is. It's a, it's it's a like good a circled little, little we right there. That's the first we. Good job. All right. Well, <laughs> sorry. Good job to Luke for doing that. Thank you. Uh, they make their way to Philippi, which is a city in the region of Macedonia, and it's a Roman colony. Uh, so we were, and it says we remained in the city for some days. So there you go. Uh we then learn that of a woman named Lydia from Thyatira, and she comes to believe in Christ. So cool, cool beans. We'll hear about Thyatira later when we get to Revelation. There's a letter that's written to that church. Uh, after this, Paul and Silas meet a slave girl who is demon possessed, but she's used as a fortune teller by her masters. And so basically, they'd be like, "Hey, you can pay money, and she'll she'll tell you your your." She has a spirit of divination, is kind of how it's described. Uh, and so she keeps like bothering them. Eventually, they cast out the demons, and her masters are pretty freaking peeved about that. And so they accuse Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace, and they have them thrown in jail. And then we get this famous story. Damn, what's crazy? Are you gonna read the story? Yeah. Or no, you're gonna read a different story. Oh. The crazy thing about this 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 gal who was possessed was following them around. Like yelling out loud, like, and so they weren't even going to deliver the gal, and they oh, right. just were annoyed by the fact that she kept saying, "These men will tell, these men will tell you about how to have salvation in Christ." Like my paraphrase, yeah. But they they finally just got annoyed, and they rebuked the demon. Like it, 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 <laughs> it was it, one of those things. Like, yeah, she's not cursing them or anything. No, she's just. She, it's like a, a a a verbal billboard everywhere they go, and they just got annoyed with it. Which it's it's interesting to me. Like it even reinforced like. 
Like, why didn't they just stop in here? Didn't like, wouldn't it be a big deal to heal someone who's demon possessed like that? But there's moments where like in the kingdom of God, things don't make sense. And so it's, it was always funny to me. And especially recently, like they could have held, healed her from the very beginning and they weren't going to, they kept walking around doing other things. Um, so I think it's interesting. It was just kind of funny. Like out of, out of annoyance, he rebukes the demon and, <laughs> and delivers her. Yeah, for and sure. then the guys are mad. But anyways, it was just funny. Well, continuing with the story, that's a great point. Uh, it says this in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Remember back to the story of what does Herod do when Peter escapes? He has all the guards killed, so the guard seems to... He, this this seems to be a very common practice in the world at that point, where like, hey, if you're on watch and your prisoner escapes, you get to die for it. Uh, but Paul cried... With a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And they brought him them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the words of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he then took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once and, his, and his, all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What's interesting in this story here is what what changes the heart of the jailer? It's Christian mercy in that hmm. moment. Because um, I think, and, and obviously the, he, he's witnessing a miracle, but I don't even know, maybe he doesn't view this as a miracle because it's an earthquake and maybe it just he just thinks it jarred all of the doors open. It is what it is. Um, what changes his mind is... Paul is knowing that Paul could have escaped and no one would have blamed him. And yet he stays because he has mercy on the jailer. So really, really powerful story there. I, I love that. Uh, Paul and Silas the next day are freed, but they're asked to leave the city, which they do. Uh, after this, they travel to Thessalonica. We're more on that here in a little bit. Uh, they preach the gospel, but also they get into trouble again from some of the Jewish believers. Uh, then they extort a man. Sorry, not they. Uh, the Jewish believers at the moment. And I shouldn't even. I don't know if I actually call them Jewish believers. I think it's. I think these are. Jews who have rejected the message of Christ. Uh, they extort a man named Jason who pays a fine. And then Paul and Silas then move on to Berea. Uh, in Berea, Paul is forced to leave when some of the Jews from Thessalonica come over to make trouble. However, Silas and Timothy stay behind. And that's where I wrap it up for today. So Aaron's coming up here and we're going to see a little bit more about this missionary journey from Paul. Uh, but before we do, we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review on whatever app you're listening on particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are kind of the two where we get a lot of our listenership and it helps get that out there to more people. Uh, I think Spotify, we're closing in on 300 reviews. So 277 this morning. There you go. It just shot up, Good. Which is crazy. Way to go, Spotify listeners. And then on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review, which is pretty cool. Spotify won't let us do that yet, whatever. Uh, but I don't you, know if they ever will. Yeah, who knows? Uh, but if you leave a written review, we will read it on the air just because, you know, we like to give our listeners a shout out. So go ahead and do that for us. And yeah, leaving the positive reviews, it just helps get the podcast out there to more people, continue to grow this community of everyone reading the Bible together. So we'd love it if you would take the time to leave us such a review. Yeah, would love for you to do that. Uh, 
we continue in Acts for a little bit. We're actually going to be introduced to three new books today in First and Second Thessalonians, and then also Corinthians, the first three chapters. Uh, and I'm just going to be transparent with you. This is a meaty portion of the reading plan because there's so much to these uh, letters, specifically Corinthians, the only first three chapters. I had a ton of things underlined that I'm not going to be able to share all of it with because I just don't have time. But Corinthians is like the reality. It's TV incredible. <laughs> it will, and it's drama church. and Paul speaking to the drama, which is crazy. Um, but we do pick up back up in Acts chapter 17, where at this point Paul is in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. As he's waiting, he kind of wanders around the town uh, because Paul is all about trying to preach the gospel, right? So he's wandering around the town and he's confronted with the extremity of people's religiousness, religiousness, if that, if I can say it that way. Um, in essence, they have many idols uh, that are on display at this one wall in uh, in Corinth there, in Athens there, uh, not Corinth yet, sorry. And even one that is like an unknown to an unknown God. So they kept a space just in case they missed someone. So this, this city is very religious, uh, very aware. They're very, uh, they don't want to offend or, or, uh, disobey or, or, or in essence, they didn't want to upset any gods because then the wrath of the gods may have come down on them. Uh, and so Paul did what he does. He starts preaching about Christ first in the synagogue, then goes throughout the city in the marketplace. Um, and in essence, the, the responses are mixed where you've got some that wanted to hear more from a philosophical conversation. Some thought him to be ridiculous, especially when they, he, Jesus got, or he got to the point where Jesus was dead, but then rose again. They, they thought he was ridiculous and their hearts became hard. And then some believed, and we got a couple names that were dropped with Dionysius, the Hierapagite, and then a woman named Damaris, uh, and then it says, and others. Uh, so there was a mixed bag of response. Um, and that's where Acts 17 wraps up. Acts 18 verses one through three picks up where Paul leaves Athens, went, goes to Corinth. He meets Aquila and Priscilla, who are Jews, um, who were forced to leave Rome by Claudius, where he, Claudius tries to remove all the Jews. From the, from the city of Rome, uh, they're tent makers by trade, which is something Paul was as well, because uh, Paul worked for a living. He didn't just travel around as a traveling evangelist and speaking and making money that way. Yeah, he was making tents, everybody. Yep. So he was a tent maker. So we found common ground with Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, we don't necessarily have a uh, clear conversion story from them, but we have different moments later on that allude to the fact that they were actually Christians as well. Um, and so he, so they join him. He goes to the Corinthian synagogue, he preaches there, uh, and this is where the, the launch of the Corinthian church starts. Um, and so while he's there in Corinth, he he sends, uh, we jump into 1 Thessalonians. This is where um, where Paul launches the church. I had to remember this as we were jumping into this portion, even with Galatians, is I, I was reading it from like a chronological perspective where I was expecting Paul to be in Corinth when he's writing the Corinthian letter, but it's not true at all because he launches these churches, which is why we read the, the portion of Acts that talks about the churches being launched. And then after the fact, he sends letters because that's what would happen. Paul would then write letters to encourage the believers in a city uh, to address concerns that he has been, he had reports from or things that he had observed or heard about. Uh, and so this is what's happening. He's in the Corinth right now. He's writing the letter to Thessalonians. Um, and this was a church that was born while Paul, Paul was in Greece. Uh, Thessalonica was a port city by the Aegean Sea. Uh, Jews there were very jealous of the early Christians and what they were doing and what they were accomplishing. So they uh, went after the early Christians there where Paul and Silas were. They threatened Jason, who is the house that was hosting Paul and Silas. They brought him to uh, the mark, the court to have... In essence, to cause him and accuse him of harboring sideways people that were not in alignment with the Jewish beliefs. 
Jason ended up paying a bond and a, and a fee so that way he could settle the dispute. Uh, and then they sent Paul and Silas to Berea, uh, where just in essence to alleviate the accusations, the the the, the drama that could have unfolded. Um, so Paul and Silas were in Berea. Paul wanted to go back to Thessalonica, but he couldn't. And that could be very well because a part of the 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 bond that was paid by Jason or because of the persecution, we kind of allude, get a few different things that Paul says in the letter to Thessalonians. Um, so they send back Timothy to encourage the church. Uh, and what we have in this letter is, is the response from Timothy's report to the Thessalonians from Paul, uh, where Timothy reports back all the suffering that they were enduring, but they were standing firm and unwavering. Uh, there were some doctrinal misunderstandings specifically to the end, the last day, the return of Christ. Uh, but they were still laboring, hoping for the return of Christ. So Paul writes to encourage and remind them of the sanctification, the work of becoming like Christ that God, is God's will for them, uh, and also to correct some of those doctrinal misunderstandings. So in these five chapters, we get Paul's response to the report from Timothy for the Thessalonians. Paul typically starts his letters off with a greeting, uh, which we see in chapter one. Uh, then it follows by a uh, just a portion of thanksgiving. Uh, and so Paul writes in Thessalonians here, one, two through 10, uh, it's a thanksgiving for them and their faithfulness and endurance to Christ. Uh, I just think it's really fun to read these because you get an insight into um, into the church and what's going on with the people in that city. And so I'm going to read these nine verses here. It says this, We always thank God for all of you making mention of your cons- of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of God our Father, God, our God and Father, you worked your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for the benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and the Lord, when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so that's Paul. Paul wraps up the first chapter there just with this greeting of thanks. He's affirming their faith. He's affirming the things that Timothy reported, and then he shifts into chapter two with his uh, reinforcement of his con- of his conduct, but also his motivation why he was there. He didn't want to be a burden. Uh, so we see in chapter two this drawing back of his love for uh, the Thessalonians, but also while proving it with his conduct. He says this in chapter two, verse seven through twelve. It says although we could have we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you, as nurse nurture as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared for you so much that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. And you see this really intimate moment where Paul is, is saying, like, I didn't just come to you and preach. I didn't just come to you and and lay down the gospel and then expect you to care for us. He's like, we actually cared so much that we not only were pleased to share the gospel, but we shared our own lives. Like, we were shoulder to shoulder. We were, I mean, it's, it's almost like Paul is saying, man, you remember when we were rough out or you're playing tag on the beach or we had that football game here or whatever. Like he was talking about, like we did, we shared lives together. We laughed together. We cried together. We, we were united heart and soul. So he's reaffirming his conduct. He's drawing them back to remember his love for them. 
And he says this in verse 9, For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live a life, to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so he's just reaffirming their their relationship. He's reaffirming their their passion and their love for each other. He then celebrates their receptiveness to the message of the gospel as he continues in chapter two, and they received it and held on to it. So he celebrates that and and and, and affirms them. He communicates his desire to see them, but prevention by Satan. Uh, and this is where he he kind of alludes to the potential of maybe it was persecution that kind of removed him. Like when he was sent away by Jason in the house of Jason and Silas to Berea, uh, that could be what he's referring to here. Um, he can refer be referring to um, even the attack on Jason's household. And there's, like I said, the bond that Jason would have paid to alleviate the uprising and the frustration of the Jewish council in, in uh, Thessalonica there. Uh, but there's even potential, I, I don't remember, I think it's like a, a reference in passing in Second Corinthians about he, there may have been a sickness that prevented him from coming. Um, but either way, he says, hey, I wanted to come see you, but I couldn't. There were things at work that prevented me from coming to see you. Then he shifts into chapter three, where he talks about his concern in Athens for them, led Paul to send Timothy to find out about their faith in the midst of persecution. So it says that it just shows that I was deeply concerned. I wanted to see how you guys were doing because I I care about you. I want to make sure that you're not being led astray or letting being led away by false teaching or whatever. Like that's Paul's concern for the Thessalonians. Uh, he says that Timothy's report brought good news and encouragement to Paul and Silas. Um, and then he has a written prayer for the church, which I think is always important um, to kind of read these. But also I love that you get to see a little bit of insight from how Paul would pray and how he would pray for the, and how we in essence can take some of what he said and pray for the church at large today, the body of Christ, the body of believers. Uh, and so when you get to that portion, chapter three, it's worth reading and worth even like I, I did it this, this uh, last week when I was reading it, where I just kind of prayed in alignment with this prayer for the Thessalonian church, but also for the 2023 church. Um, I just think it's a fun way to, to, to leverage some of those prayers written by Paul. Um, it's just another way of learning to develop prayer uh, as, a, as a regular habit and what to even pray at times. Um, chapter four continues with this exhortation to continue to live righteously as they've already done, but then he's exhorting and challenging them to do so even more. Uh, he, he talks about two main things in this, pa- this chapter where he talks about uh, fleeing and, and staying away from sexual morality, which is a very big topic. I mean, it, it is interesting to me that even when the Gentile audience experienced salvation and the baptismal Holy Spirit and the work of God, that the Jewish council said, okay, let's tell them these things. And sexual morality was one of the main things that the early church, the Gentile church Christians were told to stay away from and avoid. I would say that message translates hardcore easily to 2023. Um, and so we can read this exhortation much in the same way as Paul is challenging us today as well. He also talks about brotherly love, which I want to read this passage for a moment, uh, verses 9 through 12, where it says about brotherly love, you do not need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life. Now, this is interesting too. So he talks about... Love one another, care deeply. You're already doing this. God's command's already there. 
uh, but do it even more. And then he says this in verse 11 and 12, it says, and seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. The, the, the picture here is Paul is telling them, don't draw attention to yourselves. Don't make a big show out of stuff. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands and serve and love well because the presence of outsiders, don't be swayed or manipulated or pulled into any sideways conversations. But in essence, Paul is saying, build each other up, serve one another in love, love the community you're in and preach the gospel. And he's challenging the Thessalonians to keep this as a priority and a focus for them. Uh, Because if we lead quiet lives and we do everything we can not to draw attention to ourselves, but we walk in grace and love and humility, that the gospel goes forward and create, and we have opportunities to preach the same gospel. So it was really interesting. Some of the, the challenges and some of the clarity Paul brings to the Thessalonians, he continues and talks about the comfort of Christ coming Again, where we hope we have hope in the midst of grief, grief, which I think is really important um, to remember, is this picture of this present age is not the end. This is a transition to eternity, and and so he says, when there is those who die and and pass away, we have hope in the midst of grief, knowing that we will rise again with Christ. But both the dead and the alive upon His return will rise in the sky with Christ, and. And we will live in eternity belonging to the family of God with life and life abundant. And so I think it's a really important challenge. And we talk about this on the podcast all the time about how it's really important to keep our, our perspective eternally based, not, not worldly focused on what's present of this day and age. Uh, and then he ch- talks in chapter five about the day of the Lord. And he calls the Thessalonians to be ready, to be alert, um, and to let the way that they live their lives carry and carry themselves reflect the the readiness and expectation of the day of the Lord will come. We have this moment of exhortations and blessings, uh, which are like quick hits and reminders for the church. It's kind of like the last few little highlights that we'll t- Paul will hit. Then he does a, a uh, thanks and a blessings at the very end. Hey, greet so-and-so, blessings from so-and-so. And it's, it's pretty Pauline, typical of what Pauline does in a letter. Paul does in a letter. Uh, Pauline. Pauline. Uh, and then we, and that wraps up chat, or First Thessalonians. Then we're, we see Thessalonians, the second letter written to the church. Um, and this is a follow-up that's written uh, from the first one that provides further clarity on what it looks like to live the Christian life in light of the return of Christ. So we get this chapter five highlight where uh, Paul talks about the day of the Lord coming, the return of Christ. Uh, and it wasn't as clear, I guess, for the Thessalonians. Obviously, that's why the second letter is written. And so... The Thessalonians in this, in response to this letter, we see that the Thessalonians have appeared to think that they are already living in the day of the Lord and anticipating that Christ is going to return at any moment. And so their lives are not reflecting a, uh, a diligence to work, uh, but a laziness to wait. And so that's the, that's the context with which Paul is writing to. Um, Paul assures them in the second letter that they're not as they are not at the end times just yet. They're not the last day yet because there are certain end time events that have yet to take place and they haven't taken place as well as the antichrist or the man of lawlessness, which is referred to in chapter two. Um, he has not yet been revealed. Uh, so we, so Paul's 
Paul's telling him it's not time yet. So get back to work is in essence what he's saying. Uh, so in, in typical fashion, chapter one, we see a greeting. We see a praise for their faith. Uh, we see a reminder of God's vengeance for those who disobey the gospel uh, and, cause, and, the, and in turn are causing the Thessalonian church affliction and suffering. So he's in essence reaffirming, hey, continue to stand firm, continue to endure. God is the one who will bring punishment uh, to those who are disobeying the gospel. Then we get chapter two, which talks about the man of lawlessness in the first 12 verses here. So I want to read this because I think it's important um, to just understand what Paul is saying here because it's not the most clear. And so I'm going to kind of provide a quick overview, quick highlight for it. But it says this in verse one, it says, now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. So in other words, already the Thessalonians are getting uh, false letters, scam, scammers, if you will, that will, that are saying, hey, the day of the Lord is here. You, you, you be ready. Stop, you know, keep your head up. Keep your eyes alert. You missed it. Because he's coming. You missed it. Um, all these different things. So Paul is saying, listen, don't be upset by these things because they're not really from us. They're scams. Um, he's saying, verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And this is referring to the Antichrist figure we get in, in apocalyptic literature. We'll see, will be introduced even more uh, formally in the Red Book of Revelation and even throughout some of more Pauline's letters. Uh, it says that this about the man of lawlessness. You keep saying Pauline. I don't know. Pauline just, letters. Pauline letters. Oh, gotcha. Not Pauline is I thought you were name. saying Pauline's letters. No, Pauline. Like, Pauline letters. Yeah, I got you there. Honestly. So Paul's letters. Is that better? Would that be better I, for I you? I just thought maybe you had like Mario Kart on your Evan mind Evan keep like, like tweaks. That, so he keeps twitching every time I say Pauline. Oh, so. Um, so Paul's letters, uh, he, he refers to that and he'll talk more about this man of lawlessness. Uh, he continues in, in chapter two here. He says that he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Worship. So that he sits in God's temple, proclaiming that he himself is God. Do you don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you all about this? So we get an allusion to some teachings that Paul had with the Thessalonians, but we don't get the full scope of his teachings in this letter. He says, "And you know that current what currently restrains him, so that you, he will be revealed in the, in his time. From the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way." And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him in the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming, work, the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracle signs and wonders. With every wicked deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love and truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe a lie. So they will all be condemned, those who do not believe in the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. So it's kind of a, a scary thought, but at the same time shows the sovereignty of God that when the man of lawlessness arrives, that God is still in control. And the rejection of those who are rejecting the truth and the gospel will fall victim and fall prey to the lies, the false miracles um, that are that will be played out in the false signs and wonders. Um, and so Paul is bringing clarity to the Thessalonians saying, the time is not yet here. The man of lawlessness is not yet here. So then he says at the end of chapter two, to stand firm and remember God's call in your life. He is sovereign. He is the one who calls you. He's the one that sets you apart. Anchor to him and him alone. Then in chapter three, we get this small little moment where he requests prayer for prayer for him and, and those with him, Silas and Timothy. 
Um, and then he responds with a reply of prayer. Um, and then he, part of this is he warns against irresponsible behavior. And this is where we get the the highlight in the intro as, as Paul's wrapping up his letter. Um, basically, it's lame, lazy people shouldn't eat. He's saying he's saying this: lazy people shouldn't eat if they don't change their behavior. And if the and if they don't change their behavior, remove them from you and let them be ashamed. So what's happening is the Thessalonians, some of the Thessalonians within the church, within the Christian church, are saying, "Hey, the Lord, the day of the Lord is here." I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to wait for his arrival. All the while, you have the other people in the, in, the, in the Thessalonian church that are working hard, that are providing meals, and they're continuing to share what's in common because that was a sign of the early church. And so they're getting frustrated by because the lazy ones are eating but not working. They're not carrying their weight. And Paul's saying, you know what? They don't work. Don't let them eat. If they're, if they're going to be lazy, that's on them. Let them. And if they don't change their behavior, then remove them from among you, and then they'll face their own shame. And they'll be ashamed of their work. And so Paul is just providing direction on how to handle those who are lazy uh, and they're not pulling their weight. And he's just saying, remove them if they don't change. Then he hits the final greetings in Second Thessalonians, which is the final greetings to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, and that's where we wrap up his conversation. We jump back into Acts this week, chapter 18, uh, verses 4 to 28. We're brought back to Paul still in Corinth, where we see him with Timothy and Silas start and, to, and build the Corinthian church. They face opposition. Paul will get frustrated, says he's going to preach to the Gentiles from now on. He goes uh, to uh, a guy named Titius Justice, his house, uh, which is next to a synagogue. We find out this guy named Crispus, who is a synagogue leader, is actually a believer, um, and that many in this in the in the Corinth uh, in, in the city of Corinth believed and were baptized. And then we have this encounter with Christ that Paul has via a dream, and he's told this in verse chapter eighteen, verses nine through eleven. Says the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And then it says, Paul stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. So Paul stays for a long time launching the Corinthian church, building up the Christian body, and preparing them uh, to continue the, the, the gospel mission for the city of Corinth. We then find out that Paul is attacked by Jews and brought before Galileo. Uh, accused of persuading people to worship God instead of the Jewish uh, way of worship, which is true. It's a, it's a true accusation. Uh, and But before Paul could even open his mouth and defend himself, it says that Gallia threw out the case and rebuked, <laughs> rebuked the Jewish leaders. Uh, and then all of the Jewish leaders turned on Sosthenes, who was the leader of the synagogue at the time, and beat him up in the, inside of Gallio. And it says that Gallio didn't care about any of this. Um, and so Paul didn't even have to defend himself, which is a rare thing because typically he's having to defend himself. Uh, but we get this kind of moment where he's accused because, again, it comes back to the jealousy of the Jews to see what God is doing in the Christian church, and they can't get over their own pride. Um, Paul stays here for a bit, then sails back to Syria. Uh, where it says that he shaves his head and it's not certain whether it's Paul or Aquila um, that are shaving their heads in this moment. And it's probably in response to a Nazarite vow that they had made coming out of that. But it says that they shave their head, which is kind of a little side note. Uh, they come to Ephesus where they're preaching for a bit. again, And this is where Aquila and Priscilla are also with Paul now. Um, and so they go to Ephesus, they're preaching for a bit, and then they head to Caesarea and then on to Antioch, which is in Syria, the one in Syria, not the one in Galatia. Um, and then traveled uh, around encouraging believers at this point, even that goes into Galatia and Phyresia. 
Uh, and then they're introduced to Apollos, which is someone Evan referred to. We read this in chapter 18, verse 24 to 28. Now a Jew named, named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, though he only knew John's baptism. What which John's baptism is, is a baptism water, where it's repenting of sins, uh, and it's a, showing through the baptism with John, they're aligned with uh, John the, the Baptist. It says, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So it's interesting because what, what's going on here is he's a very eloquent man, very competent in use of the scriptures, understood the times, understood, baptized to follow John the Baptist. Uh, he was teaching accurately about who Jesus was, but he didn't have the full picture of the full story. So as he's speaking in the synagogue, Aquila and Priscilla are there. They hear him, pull him aside, explain to him the way of, the God's, way of God, so that way he is then in full alignment with, with Christ as the Messiah, in full alignment with who Christ is, what he came to do in the gospel. And, and then is a part of the group at this point. Uh, it says, when Paul then writes, or says, when we, or this is Luke, sorry, when we wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. So this is referring to Apollos. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, and so we get this really great introduction to Apollos. We get uh, this, this reality of his conversion. Incredible things. Uh, in chapter 19, we see Apollos is in Corinth. He travels with uh, Paul to Ephesus. He meets the 12 sons of the John, John the Baptist, which is this group of, of disciples who are following John the Baptist, but they're, so they're misaligned uh, a little bit. They still have faith in what John the Baptist was teaching, but they didn't fully understand who Christ was and what Christ meant. So Paul corrects their alignment, then baptizes them in water in faith in Christ, and then lays hands on them. They receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, accompanied by tongues and prophecy. Paul then enters the synagogue and preached boldly over the three months of time. Some obviously opposed his teaching. So Paul took, uh, in this moment, he takes those disciples away privately and taught them in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. So we're getting snap, quick snapshots, even going back to Paul's conversion or Paul's discipleship method in 13 years. It is, a, it is a process. It's not just these quick hits and all of a sudden it happens. Even Apollos being taught, being trained, understanding and aligning what he understands with the gospel is really important. Uh, so we see this moment happening. It says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hand, verse 11, 12, so that even the face, this is incredible, even the face cloths and aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick. The diseases left him and the evil spirits came out of them. It's incredible to think that even a cloth, and we see, I, I mean, we can jump on the uh, late night televangelist things where they pray over, hey, buy this anointing cloth. This is so remarkable. It should never be sold anyways. Paul never got money from this, but it was pretty remarkable what actually happened versus I think what is happening more so today. Um, God can still use it, but I don't think buying something is going to bring healing um, to you as a side note, hot take, I guess. Whoa, no shopping. Uh, we jump in, yeah, we jump in uh, to this next portion of chapter 19 where we see itinerant exorcists took advantage of what's happening, uh, where they're commanding demons to come out and they say that in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. Uh, so they're encountering the demonic uh, and we are introduced to seven sons of Sceva, who is a Jewish high priest at this point. They were doing this. They go to one man who's possessed by a demon and they say, we, cast, we, we command you to come out in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. 
The demon responds, who are you? I know Jesus and I know of Paul, uh, but who are you? And they, it says that the man possessed by a demon beat them, my, my paraphrase, he beat them, beat them to a pulp uh, and because they didn't have the authority to cast him out. And then it says this, which I think is so incredible, that we, which caused Jesus' name in this moment to be held in high esteem. Uh, it's just this incredible moment. Then we see in the aftermath of this, after Jesus' name is held in high esteem, we see those who are practicing witchcraft and the cult, practicing evil, come out, confess, and burn their books that they have. And it's like 50,000 silver coins, which is just an exorbitant amount of money today. Uh, but they they burn all of these books in, of, of witchcraft and sorcery. Uh, and and that's where we wrap up the Acts portion for this week's reading. And But then we're introduced to Corinthians. Um, we know for, in 1 Corinthians that Paul ministered in Corinth for at least 18 months. Obviously, he left with Aquila and Priscilla. He met Apollos, who was then sent to Corinth to lead the church there. Uh, so 1 Corinthians, and the other side note about this too, like 1 Corinthians is a second letter that Paul wrote. We don't have an earlier uh, copy, but we do know that there was an admonition not to mix with the sexually immoral in that first letter to Apollos. And so this letter was written in response to reports from Chloe's household um, and about some factional strife within the church. Paul had already received reports about an incestuous relationship, factions around the Lord's Supper, confusion about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and so Paul wrote to address the dysfunction that exists in the Corinth Corinthian church. And there is so much to this book. Uh, and even in these first three chapters, there's so much to it. But what, what I love about it is it's got, got Paul speaking to a party church, a party city, and a church that is standing in the gap trying to reconcile the gospel with a ridiculous culture. Uh, and we're seeing cultural things infiltrate the church that Paul is addressing. Um, he starts off typical where he has a greeting in chapter one, followed by a, a Thanksgiving where he thanks God for their faith in Christ. He celebrates them and affirms them. Uh, but then he jumps into uh, calling out the divisions that are existing among the churches where disciples of Paul, Apollos, or Peter are saying, well, I belong to so-and-so, and I belong to so-and-so, and I belong to so-and-so. Uh, but Paul realigns their discipleship and their uh, identity as a follower of Christ and Christ alone. Um, and, and you'll see this actually in it be interwoven through the majority of the chapter that we're, the chapters that we're reading today. Uh, he does have this beautiful passage that I think is important to read. It says 1 Corinthians 18 to 25, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of his, of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe him, or believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So Paul right out the gate is saying, stop being divided based upon who you met Jesus through. My paraphrase, obviously. Stop being divided and realign to the fact that it's God who, who is the Redeemer, God who is sovereign. It's Christ who's the Messiah. He's the one that unites us all. So be in one accord, be in one mind. And, and then it leads to an exhortation in chapter one about boasting only in the Lord uh, where God chooses what is foolish, what is weak to glorify his name and accomplish his work. Um, 
Paul takes a moment in chapter two to explain his posture and position as an apostle, where he says, I don't come to you with wise words, but I came to you except to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That I was, I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. My speech and preaching were not persuasive. Um, and, he's, and he says, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, so Paul's doing a really very thorough job of realigning the Corinthian faith not to an individual, but to God alone uh, through the gospel of, of Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he then explains in chapter two that the spiritual wisdom with which he teaches and preaches from um, is is not of human origin, but it's of of spiritual uh, divinity. It's of it's of God, and so we they preach and teach from God, not from the human wisdom, which is going to be this constant ba- back and forth uh, contrast. And even today, I would say we as believers have access to wisdom, the spiritual wisdom, because it's the same spirit um, who empowered Paul who is also empowering us today. And then we get to chapter three, where Paul calls out immaturity, uh, which is in essence the problem of humanity and sin. Uh, and it's seen through the strife and envy that exists among the Corinthian believers. Um, Paul places the pillars of their faith, namely Peter, Paul, Apollos, um, it puts them in their place as servants of God's work, where Paul says, one watered, one planted seed, one watered, um, but God is the one who brings growth, and which is a pretty significant position to be in uh, as a servant. Uh, it's not about them. It's about the one they're serving and representing. So that's what Paul is trying to do in chapter three here. He's realigning their faith. Um, and we get this in chapter three, verse nine to 17. It says, for we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it, but each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay the, any other foundation that, was, that has been laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And that is what you are. And I say this because what Paul is doing is he's setting a he's setting a standard and realigning their understanding of who Christ is and what they're called to do, where the foundation has been laid. No one else can build or lay a foundation because it's already been laid, and that foundation is Christ. So then he says it's our job as followers of Jesus to build upon that foundation, and we are to build on it because what we are building will be tested in the fire on the last day, will be proved to be uh, either if it stands, it's going to be rewarded. If it's if it burns up, it's, there won't be a reward. It will be a loss, but you'll still be saved. So it's it's not a salvation standard, but it's a what are you doing with the the hope of the gospel, the truth of the gospel? And Paul is saying, listen, you are God's temple. You are called to be holy. That is what you are. So build intentionally and strategically based upon the foundation of the gospel, and build with things that are worthwhile. Invest in the right things. Use the gold, silver, costly stones. The wood, hay, or straw is going to burn up on the last day when everything is tried. And so it's this picture that even go back to James or go to James, if you will, where it says, don't just be hearers, but be doers. Works without faith don't matter, but show, show your faith by the work that you do, I think is, is part of the tension Paul's creating here for the Corinthian believers, where it's not about who you align with, but it's about the foundation that you know is Christ 
and building upon that foundation with how we live our lives and what we invest in. Um, Paul wraps up chapter three and even this week's reading where he calls out human wisdom versus godly wisdom and the folly that exists in us relying on our human wisdom rather than on the wisdom from the Lord. And again, re-anchors everyone's identity, everyone's faith, everyone's life in Christ to Christ as the unifier and source of wisdom for life and all and for life and call and purpose with which we live. Um, But Paul is tackling on some very big conversations, and we just get the introduction in the first three chapters. Uh, And so there's more to come as we read over the next week, Um, but that's kind of where we end up right now in Paul's argument to a dysfunctional church in Corinth. Well, we'll follow up with that dysfunctional church more next week because it it just gets worse. Uh, But we're not going to do that right now. Instead, we're going to talk about what we learned today. All right. For me this week, I think it's it's pretty simple, but it's just the whole application portion of Galatians. It's this idea that we're justified by faith alone. And there's a reason that Paul has to keep hammering this home because it goes against everything that we believe instinctually as humans. Yeah. Uh, when we want to make relationships good, what do we do? Well, we think we, when we've wronged someone in a relationship, what's the idea? It's okay. Well, how do I make amends? How do I make this right? How do I restore this relationship? It's very action-based and it's not a bad thing in peer-to-peer human relationships, right? Like we should want to uh, do something in order to bring health back to the relationship. Uh, So it's weird that that's not how salvation works. We don't get to earn it. We don't get to do something and then God says like, okay, wow, you've earned your salvation back. No, it's it's uncomfortable to believe that our entire standing before God is because of what Christ has accomplished, not because of what what we have accomplished. And then to further move with what Paul is saying in, in Galatians, that should affect how we live our lives. So if we truly believe that we're saved because of what Jesus did, not because of what we've done, then we should be extremely quick to give mercy to others. We should be extremely uh, striving to live with the, with the fruit of the spirit as, as we interact with others. All those different things are an outgrowth of the mercy of God, because if God has shown us incredible mercy, then we're called by God to show others incredible mercy as well. I think that's a really bad thought. And yeah, I completely disagree with you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I think for me this week, just as I'm watching the church, not just be launched, but just exploding, like just watching it cr- crank throughout uh, the known world at the time, it's just that reminder of of that like, Jesus is enough. Like we don't we don't need all these like fancy, you know. Uh, things, but it really is Jesus is enough. And um, I thought it was really, really incredible just to listen and, and read, I mean, listen, but really read what um, was happening in, in Acts. Paul was even uh, navigating in Corinth, the, um, the seven sons of Sceva bit, but really the those who practicing the occult, those who practicing witchcraft and sorcery and things like that, like Jesus is enough. And so I just, it's just that reminder, like we need the power of, uh, of the Holy Spirit to to accomplish and further the mission and for further the kingdom. And, and we we shouldn't take it that for granted for one day. And we should always be reminded of our need for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that's the biggest thing for me. Absolutely. All right. Well, last segment of today, we had a couple questions come in. Well, I mean, we've already talked about the beginning. We, we had a, a lot bunch of questions, questions yeah. coming. So we're answering two we're today. Answering. <laughs> we're answering two. Yep. Here we go. 
Okay, first one says this. I have a question. Uh, what happened to Moses' sons? And then she cites First uh, Chronicles 23, verses 14 through 15. And that says, But the sons of Moses, the man of God, were named among the tribe of Levi. The sons of Moses were Gershom and Eleazar. So there you go. Gershom. 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 I is true. Gershom. <laughs> I don't know how you pronounce it. I don't know either. Okay. Well, and, and that should give you a hint. Uh it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I think we we wonder like, are they lost? Like, whatever happened? I think the answer is that they just kind of lived inconsequential lives, and and that's not an insult. That because I think there's a lot of people in. How dare you? Yeah, think about like we don't know what happened with. Uh, I shouldn't say we don't know, but there's nothing really consequential mis- mentioned of a lot of le- of a lot of the sons of leaders. We kind of I think we get in this idea because. Once you get into Kings and Chronicles, all of the sons of kind of the main characters, or at least of the kings, they're all doing something, right? They're all either getting killed in battle, or they're leading a rebellion, or they're becoming the next king. With the judges, it's not really like that. Like Samuel's sons, they suck, and they kind of just they kind of just go away. <laughs> like you know, we don't hear very much Bye-bye. about them. Uh, I'm, I'm the, in the exception being Gideon's son, who is just awful. I forgot his name, but he goes through and kills the rest of his brothers and tries to become king for a little bit. So that's kind of the the exception of the rule where we actually hear about what comes after the descent. So in a way, it's actually better to uh, to not be heard from again because it means that you also probably didn't do anything exceptionally evil. Uh, but, but they settled into the land so that we're told there that they are named among the tribe of Levi. Uh, they may not have done much of note, uh, although they – they definitely have children. So in Judges, later on, in, in the end of Judges, uh, I believe in chapter 18 or 19. But if you remember back to there's- Almost the, like the 19. Yeah. there's <laughs> <That's> no idea. <laughs> well, 19 is the really sad, like disturbing story. <laughs> oh, uh, no, I feel bad for even being sarcastic. No, it's all good. Biscuits. Uh, so that's the one, if you remember, Dan, it, the, the tribe of Dan is kind of apostate. They're wandering around. They're trying to find his place. They find someone to act as a high priest, and that's a man named Jonathan. Uh, if you trace back his lineage, he's actually a descendant of Gershom, who is one of the sons of Moses. So Ooh. so there you go. It's not not a direct, or not, I shouldn't say not direct, but not the, not the he's not, it's not something that the son of Moses does, but we do see that clearly they remained in Israel the rest of their lives. And then they had children in Israel, and yeah. and one of them, unfortunately, uh, is does not do good like Jonathan. So not great. But that's kind of the answer. Uh, the they it's a boring answer. They lived in Israel, and they didn't do much of consequence, and that was it. So yeah. they were probably priests. Well, the, the kudos nights. for you for watching, because I I just pass over that sort of stuff sometimes because I, I, it, I call it lazy, call it whatever. But when I read that, it's really more. I'm looking ahead to the gospels and things like that. So I remember it's good to be revisiting that. Yeah, I remember thinking about it as a kid and being Really? Like, as a kid? Yeah, well cuz you just, you oh know, my goodness. like you, I was more concerned with like Dragon Ball Z as a kid than I was. Oh, you read about, you know, you read about like how Moses had kids like, "Huh, you never hear anything about the kids." And you don't. There's very few. I can references. honestly say that thought has never crossed my mind. Oh, there you go. Now it has. So I guess I'm lying. All right, second question. Uh, I am just starting to read through the Bible for the first time ever, and it has been awesome. Yes, reading through the Bible is awesome. Good job. Uh, Surely not You picked a great way to start reading through it if you're reading along the plan, just so you know. This is probably the best way to start reading the Bible. Chronologically is great. Is is a chronological way. I would always say, like, if someone had never read the Bible before, I'd be like, read the Gospels or read John at least. Um, And then if you want to get the full picture of what the Bible is about, chronologically is a great way to do it. Because that's how we read. Period. That's how we read any story, narrative, whatever, that's chronological. Like yep. there's a series of events. Um, and so, yes, I would say Gospels first too. I agree with you 100%. And then chronological reading. The rare exception to reading chronologically is when you get those stories where it's like, yep, 
I bet you're wondering how I got into this situation, and then it freeze frames, and then you rewind. Sometimes that's fun too, but the Bible doesn't do that. Uh, <laughs> Bible doesn't need to do that. Anyway, uh, so surely not as smart as some of the other questions you get. You'd be surprised. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Shots fired. Uh, but why are so many stories in the Bible repeated over and over? It does not seem like it is written extremely differently. So is it not? Re- so it's not reading it from another perspective. Plus, if the Bible is God breathed, then it is not a different perspective from a different person, right? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Also, if you have any book recommendations for newer believers, I would love hearing about them so I can pick them up. I didn't read that last part. I'll, I'll, wow, I'll, bro. I'll think about that. I'll think about that whilst we're talking and come up with some book. I'm just not going to say a word, so we have to answer right away. <laughs> there you go. I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so this kind of gets at a couple different questions that are really interesting. The first one being, what exactly does it mean? Why or why do we get stories from different perspectives? And I think there's two reasons that we would get that in the Bible. Uh, the first ones, and this well, I'll disagree with the premise of the question a little bit. It is getting the story from a different perspective, and that's not necessarily going to be radically different, but it, it is giving us a little bit of a different, uh, a little bit of a different idea. Great examples of this would be Kings and Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kings is a is almost certainly does not have one author. It seems like it's written contemporary contemporaneously with the Kings, which means there's multiple authors and either as these things are happening or soon after the death of the King, they're compiling the history to be recorded. Chronicles probably was written by one author and seems to have, it has much more hindsight, right? So with Kings, you're kind of getting the picture of what's going on while it's happening. And I forgot, I should have written down some of the verses, but there's a few like that where it says, to this day, such and such is there. And you can actually see in the Bible when that changes. So that actually helps you date certain passages of Kings. With Chronicles, it's written with the full perspective of the fall of Jerusalem and the return from exile. So there's a there's a hopeful uptick at the end as well, but it's also trying to show the people, here's how we failed. So the things that those different stories highlight is really interesting. And also Chronicles is giving us purely the kings of Judah or the, the story through the lens of Judah. Uh, the other way that we get stories repeated would be because of their importance. And so for this one, the one that jumped to my mind was think about how often the story of the golden calf is repeated in the Old Testament. Uh, clearly, that sticks in God's craw, like like almost nothing else that the Israelites ever did. The fact that he delivered them out of Egypt, miraculously parted the Red Sea, and then a month later, they are worshiping a golden statue, and they're declaring that this is the God who brought us out of Egypt and who parted the Red Sea. So that story is repeated over and over again because God is trying to drill home a point. He's trying to show the apostasy of Israel in that moment. So the second thing that this question gets at is if the, if the Bible is God breathed, then it is not a different perspective from a different person. Correct. Uh, no. So, and, and this is where uh, we talk about open-handed and closed-handed issues. So there's things that are closed-handed. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. Um, I, things, examples of that would be Jesus is God, right? If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. I don't know what to tell you. True. Uh, so th- an open-handed issue is how exactly does the inspiration of Scripture work? Uh, we believe so. This is Second Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is God breathed and it's useful for useful for teaching. So what does that mean? I, I do not think that means that the Holy Spirit possessed human authors and used them as a. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. like a dictation. I suppose like, like as, a scribe. I, like yeah, they're just they're just the pen. 
writing the the script down to the Holy Spirit doing the work. Right. Yeah. I don't think the Holy Spirit is moving the hand necessarily. What I think is happening is the Holy Spirit is inspiring and empowering people to record the things that God wants recorded, but you're still getting the different perspectives of those people. Uh, So again, the scribes of Kings are going to have a different perspective from probably Ezra wrote Chronicles. I mean, we don't know for sure, but that seems reasonable to think. Uh, So obviously the ancient scribes of Israel are going to have a different perspective from Ezra who's writing about the same stories. Uh, Just like you're going to have some of the prophets actually write about things that are recorded in Kings of Chronicles. Jeremiah comes to mind. That's going to be a very different perspective. Uh, And the Gospels, you're going to have the perspectives of Mark, which is probably the perspective of Peter, and then John, who are disciples who were in Jesus's inner circle. So they're going to have insight into uh, aspects of Jesus. We definitely see this in John, where John gives us way more into the, the personal life of Jesus than we get in any of the other Gospels. That perspective is going to be different from Matthew, who is also one of the 12. So he's in that not the inner, inner circle, but he's in the inner circle of disciples because remember there's more besides the 12, but he doesn't have as deep a personal relationship as John does. And then Luke is the one where you're getting a very different perspective where he's kind of interviewing people and he's gathering stories. Uh, You also get to see that in Matthew, he's talking to the Jews mostly, and he's talking about how Jesus fulfills Jewish prophecy. In Luke, he's talking to the Gentiles. (coughs) He's talking about how, uh, how this applies to the Greeks. So all that to say... I believe that all of the books of the Bible are inspired by God. And by that, I mean the Holy Spirit empowered the authors to record things the way that he wanted them recorded. But that doesn't mean we lost the voice of the author as well. We are seeing things through different perspectives. And I think, honestly, with the Gospels, that is a massive gift. Because sometimes people people complain about like, why isn't there just one Gospel? Because it's so confusing because you're getting things from all these different spots and stuff like that. I love getting things from different perspectives because you can see what's important to the, to the individual people. And then you can also see, it's like, it's like if you walked into a museum and you know how you have, like, maybe there's like a jewel or something like that, where it's standing in the middle of the room and you can walk all the way around it. It, It's, it's, you miss something if you're just looking at it from one side and you don't get to fully walk around something. And that's kind of what the gospels do. The gospels allow us to walk all the way around a statue see every single little crevice that we that we would be interested in seeing and we get a fuller picture of the ministry of Jesus because of those different perspectives. So that's kind of my idea. <clears throat> Iron, I don't know if you have anything to add there. Well, now that Evan had a monologue. Um, yeah. No, I think, I, I, yeah, I agree with everything. I think one of the other layers to think about it too is like multiple accounts verifies credibility. I think it's another way of reinforcing True. that this is not just some random whimsical narrative that some person has put together, but it really shows the validation of accounts and, uh, and the validation of what's going on. So I think that that's a really significant piece too, that we forget in reading so many accounts where it is. I mean, even the New Testament talks about where, you know, two or three witnesses are required to confirm the accuracy of any accusation in court um, or any judgment of innocence. It requires two to three witnesses to corroborate the same, corroborate the same story. Um, so multiple accounts helps va- validate the truth and the authenticity of scripture as historical, as a historical document, but also a spiritual document. So I think that's a big thing too. Um, and and I do think that that we, it, it, it's important to celebrate. Yes, I, I would say yes, all scripture is God breathed, but you got to be careful what that means. Um, and I go back and I agree with Evan on what he was saying. Like it's not the Holy Spirit possessing someone 
to where the spirit of God has taken over and writing every word that's being written or every thought being put down. But the Holy Spirit is inspiring and empowering individuals to reflect on and share what Christ has done and what they observed Christ doing. And um, the the personal account is really important because God's not in the business of robot, right? He's not He's not expecting us to be robotic in our approach in our relationship. He's expecting us to be personal and transparent and honest. And I love that. I think that's the beautiful piece of scripture too. Where even the Psalms, you get you get David and the sons of Korah and all of these psalmists in their agony, which most writers would not portray certain things, even failure, seeing different things of failure, God's people fail, God's people's failure. Um, so I think there's just ways that it really is important to, to gather the whole perspective. I mean, Peter, when he denied Christ three times, like no one in their right mind will want to put that in there, but because it's true and it happened and you see God's reinstatement, I think those are big things too. So, um, it definitely is, uh, a, a, a valid and wonderful piece to the conversation for sure that there are so many accounts um, it does. It does get cumbersome and repetitive, and um, a little bit annoying at times to have to read the same story multiple times. I found myself total transparency reading through the Gospels that way this last go around. I was like, I've already read the story. Can we yeah. just move on? Um, but I do appreciate the the reality of the credibility that it verifies on top of everything that Evan has already said too. So there you go. All right. Well, second Any question. Books? Yeah, books. Okay, ready. Go. Uh, the easy. The easy answer for me is uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's on the short list of books that I would describe as actually having changed my life. Uh, so I, I, I devoured that book extremely quickly. Um, but, and- okay, so here's the deal though. If you are not a heady, and I don't, I don't know who this person is, if you're not a heady individual, you're, gonna have, you're not going to crank through like Evan did. It is a very heady book. It is a very well-written book. And I actually have high regard for it, even though I've not ever finished it because it's so deep that in not deep it's what's the word i'm looking for it's it's intense c.s lewis is a brilliant author um but he writes in a way that requires me to to slow down and so i can't crank through that book it takes me a long time to do it yeah and, and so yeah but it is a, is a phenomenal book i would agree with you 100 anything c.s lewis almost yeah c.s is, lewis is, worth, is not necessarily like <laughs> uh uh a Line the Witch in the World, the, the oh, that series. Line the Witch it's a great series, but it, as far as a new believer goes, that's what I was saying. Yeah, he wrote in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, so it's a little bit, yeah, it, the language is a Old. little bit older than what we would expect, so it, it can be a little bit hard to read, but I would say, yeah, Mere Christianity is what to start with, and then, I mean, other great ones would be like the Screw Tape Letters, uh, The Great Divorce, Abolition of Man, like some of those are just really great ways of looking through um, the four loves are just really great ways of looking at Christian doctrine. Uh, another couple ones would be uh, desiring God by John Piper is another one of those books where I would, I would put that, I would put it into that changed my life category. Um, the, Oh, sorry, listeners. Uh, the Ragamuffin gospel by Brendan Manning. Brilliant book. Super good. So I would, I would read that one. Uh, and then I also just love uh, uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn is another one of those books that I think it, it, it yeah. does an exceptional job of just letting your imagination soar about what eternity with God can look like. Um, so to repeat, it would be Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, uh, Desiring God by John Piper, Heaven by Randy Alcorn, and uh the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brett by Brendan Manning would be kind of the four. There's a, t- I mean, there's a ton of good ones. Those are there just really are. Off, yeah. Right off the top of my head, those are the ones that I, I thought of immediately. Aaron, I don't know if you have. Any. I, I mean, I don't. 
It's a hard question. It is a very hard question, if, especially for new believers. Like it's trying to wrap our heads around theology, it's trying to wrap our heads around Christian doctrine. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think uh, I think Brennan Manning has a book called The Signature of Jesus, which I, I think is a really one. good one. Um, His autobiography, All His Grace, is also fantastic. Yeah. there. I mean, there's... Yeah, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I, I, I mean, I'll shout out our one of our our people on staff who's a, an author. She wrote a book called "Hope I'm Saved." Uh, that's like True. that's like very beginning stages of of following Christ and how to set up a you know a life of discipline and um, really step. It's kind of a step by step by Jen Irvig and Megan Monterosa are the authors there, uh, but it's called "Help I'm Saved." Um, I'm trying to think what are some of the books that are you know, radically, I'm trying to look, I can't, I'm trying to picture the shelf on my, my, in my office right now. And I can't off the top of my head. Um, Mere Christianity is a good one that I, I'll be honest. I haven't cranked all the way through yet. I think Brennan Manning, anything by him is really, really good. He's got another book called the furious longing of God. Um, Ooh. Uh, there's uh, one book I always write. I would recommend to anybody anytime is soul keeping by John Orberg. That's a good um, one. That's a, that's not necessarily a new believer one though. That's a, a, a I think a foundational spiritual growth book. Um, Crazy celebration. Love that's another good one. Crazy love by Francis Chan. Forgotten God's a good one mm-hmm. um, by Francis Chan. I think um, celebration of discipline, which is an old one by Richard Foster, but talks about spiritual disciplines and and what does it look like to discipline your life and live according to in the in the healthiest sense of those because sometimes mm-hmm. it can be very re- legalistic. So, uh, but yeah, there's a ton of them out there, but I, I can't think of any more off the top of my head. But good Pil- questions. Yeah. Pilgrim's Progress, also pretty good. Read an updated English one, but yes, please of, do. Yeah, don't don't read the archaic one, but I mean, or or do if you like that kind of language. But it's definitely much easier to read in modern English. But that was written in like the 1600s, and it's just an allegory of like the Christian journey, and it's kind of just it's a helpful way to look at things sometimes. So, hopefully that helps. I mean, I love recommending books, so uh, don't you know, <laughs> don't feel bad about that. I just, Every question from here and ask, hey, what books do you recommend yeah. about this topic? I just completely missed. I mean, when I first put in the question, I completely missed. Suffering that in Silence so is they, a good one. Yeah, if you by want, a friend of mine, Evan Westerfield. If there's one thing new believers love, it's getting really into the book of Job. So I realized I could ha- look at the um, at my Kindle app and see what kind of books I have in here. Um, there you go. So I'm just looking real quick just because, again, I got to hit some things. So uh, A.W. Toza is a really good author. He's one that I think just is kind of cut and dry with stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to... Experiencing oh. the Cross by Henry Blackaby is a really good book as well. Reason for God by Tim Keller. Anything by Tim Keller is great. Oh yeah, that and that's another C.S. Lewis type reading. It, it's it's he's very he's very intelligent, um, but he doesn't communicate as a scholar in the sense of like I have to have a dictionary with me. Um, but that's a good one. Um, hang on, I'm almost done. Spiritual Rhythm. It's a really dense book, not like heavy to read, but dense. I think it's a really good book to read as well. Um, man, there's so many. If I had I'll to leave it, I'll, I'll stop there, but there's, there's some more that you could have that are worth it. So yeah, there you go. Hopefully that, hopefully that was helpful listener. Uh, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of let's read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right hand corner. And Hey, Thank you all so much for listening. Yeah, to live as Christ, to die as gained by Matt Chandler is a good one. I couldn't <laughs> so, finish that one. You couldn't. I I, I, I just like that he breaks down. I think it's Philippians, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he breaks it through there. Anyways, uh, yeah, there's a lot of them there. But anyways, those are good things. And yeah, thanks for listening. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>